0: Amen. Let all the peoples praise the Lord. Psalm 67, thank you for leading us in that. And greetings to uh, all of you on this Lord's Day morning. It is a tremendous honor for me to be with you. I do bring you greetings from our church up there in Los Alamos. Uh, We so appreciate you and the ministry Here at Desert Springs Church in our partnership in the gospel We benefit from you in so many ways that you're probably not aware of uh, But we thank the Lord for you As people move from uh, Los Alamos down to Albuquerque I don't know why anyone would, but uh, (laughs) no offense But but as they do, we uh, commend this church We send them your way, and many I know are here And thank you for caring for them uh, so well as you do I'm especially honored to be with you on your missions emphasis week. It is encouraging. Thanks for those updates. Encouraging to know that you are actively engaged in the gospel to the nations as a sending church, as tremendous, to places with little or no gospel access and seeking to care for those that you send. That's a big task, and I commend you in it. Thank you for your Commitment. Thank you that you you understand that this is the mission of the church. I always think we're the one organization, maybe it's great to belong to the one organization that doesn't have to come up with their own mission statement. That's so in vogue today. I was in Chick fil A, they have a mission statement on their thing, something about chicken, probably. I don't know what it's about, but we don't have to uh, invent ours. Christ gave it to us to make go make disciples, we've already seen it, of panta ta ethne, of all the peoples, of all the nations. That's what we're called to do. So thank you for being engaged in that. We tell our, our church that missions is not a program of our church. It's not a committee that you may or may not be involved in. It is the expectation of every member that we are engaged in the gospel to the nations because that is our call. To help us think clearly this morning about this task of the gospel to the nations, I would like to take us to Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, the book of Romans in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open there with me. We're going to focus in on Romans 10 for a little bit. But before I get there and to that outline there, let me just introduce Romans briefly to you. You may be surprised to learn that this letter is at one level a missionary support letter. Did you know that? Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome. Paul has never been to Rome. Paul did not found this church at Rome. And he wants to get there to help establish them in the gospel, but his purpose is not to stay there. And this is what he says. This is over in chapter 15 of Romans. You can look there if you want or maybe on the screen for you. Romans 15. This is what he says. He gives some of the purpose of why he wants to come to Rome, why he's writing. He says in verse 20 of chapter 15, Thus I... Aspire or make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I've often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain... For I hope to see you in passing and be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. (laughs) Paul's coming. He wants to come and enjoy their company, establish them in the gospel, but his purpose is to get to Spain and he wants them to help him on his way to Spain. So he's writing. Why is he writing this letter? Here's his purpose. He's writing to unify these Roman Christians around his gospel in order to support the extension of his mission to Spain. That's where he's heading. What drives Paul? What is his passion? What is his ambition? What does he see as the commission for himself and the church? He says it there. Back in verse 20 of chapter 15, here's my ambition, to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. That's why I want to go to Spain. Christ is not named there. He actually says some strange things. He says there's no further place for me in these regions. And these regions he's talking about are the Mediterranean region, where he has spent the past 10 years making disciples, planting the church, he says, in this whole reason, region, I have fulfilled the gospel. It's a strange way to speak. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that everybody in that region is a Christian, obviously, nor even that everybody in that region has heard the gospel. What he means is that the church is there. The church is healthy to do evangelism, but I must press on. I must get to Spain where they have no news of him. This This theology of missions is what drives Paul. These unreached peoples where Christ is not named, that is the commission that we are under, and that is the mission of the church, and Paul understood this so well. It has to, church, it has to affect us at some level that this morning there are almost 3 billion people who live in 7,000 people groups who have no access to the gospel. Where there is no church, where there is little or no gospel witness, that has to drive our mission theology of why we're here as a church, the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Paul is writing this missionary support letter, the most complex missionary support letter in the history of letters, I think, Why is he writing this? Well, he's writing to, to ground them in the gospel. The theme of Romans is not missionary work per se. It is the gospel. And he is writing to Christians, imagine that, to establish them, he says, in my gospel, that they would rally around that and be part of this extension to the nation. So Romans is all about the gospel of God. I believe, my opinion, that it is the best most thorough exposition of the good news that we have anywhere in print. And he connects that to missions. Here's a thought, this is a side thought here. Why does Paul want to ground them in the gospel when his goal is the mission to Spain? As Paul knows that the heart of God-glorifying missions is grounded in a love for the gospel. To know, love, and value deeply what God has done for us in Christ. That is the fuel for missions. Paul knows that inherent to the very nature of the gospel is its proclamation to the nations. Let me say that again because I think this is part of the theme here of what I want to see. Paul knows that inherent to the very nature of this good news, the gospel, is its demand for proclamation to the nations. It's universal proclamation. Nowhere is that probably seen more explicitly than in Romans chapter 10. So we come to it this morning, Romans chapter 10, the point is, if we are a gospel-centered church. And this church is a gospel-centered church. We should be. We make much of the gospel. We speak much of the gospel. If we are a gospel-centered church, we will be a missions-focused, missions-sending church because inherent to the very nature of the gospel is its demand for proclamation to the nations. Romans chapter 10. That's what Paul has in view. Now, if you're not familiar with the kind of layout of Paul's letter to Rome here, kind of the outline. This section, chapter 10, is found in this bigger section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is actually dealing with the unbelief of Israel, his own people, which is a significant issue as Paul unfolds the gospel. This is not a parenthesis for Paul. This is germane to understanding this good news because... If the fulfillment of the promise of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what the gospel is, Paul claims that, it fulfills the Hebrew Scriptures. If this gospel is the fulfillment of the promise of the Hebrew Scriptures, how is it that most of those to whom the promise was given don't believe it? How can that be, Paul? He has to answer, this question. And he does in this section. We don't have time for all of that answer. Here's the very oversimplified answer. Chapter 9, God is sovereign. God is sovereign in His mercy. That's what he unfolds there in answering this. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. It's not as though things are off course, as if there's a detour that God didn't anticipate. God is sovereign in the display of His mercy And the present unbelief and hardening of Israel is part of, if you can believe it, it's part of his glorious purpose. In fact, that present hardening of Israel is inseparably tied to the acceptance of the nations. That's what he's arguing. It's it's a grand argument there. So the simple answer is chapter 9, God is sovereign. But chapter 10, where we want to focus here this morning, Israel is responsible for their unbelief. And in chapter 10, he analyzes the unbelief of Israel. The unbelief of Israel. Why are they unbelieving? And he says at the first part of chapter 10, it's because they pursued the law. God's law, which was good, but they pursued it as a means of establishing a right relationship with God. They pursued it as if it were by works. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness, their own right standing before God through their doing. Which is just a common trait of almost all religions. Trying to do in order to have a right standing Before God. That was Israel's great failure. And because of that, they rejected, did not submit to the righteousness of God, which comes in Christ. The gift of God's righteousness, right standing, which is through faith in Christ. They missed what their whole law was about because they were pursuing it wrongly. And God has given this gift of righteousness in Jesus. So Paul here, he's contrasting two ways of right standing before God. There's the doing way, the law way that seeks to establish your own righteousness, that leads to death. And then there's God's way, the gift of righteousness through faith alone in Christ. And it is the second of those that good news, we call it, that second way of righteousness that Paul develops some here at the end of chapter 10. I wanna read starting in verse eight of chapter 10, and I will read through verse 17. I apologize for jumping into the middle of the text. I know that's hard. Hopefully it gives you some background, but we wanna focus on this good news of God's way of righteousness and its universal proclamation. Verse 8, you can follow or follow on the screen. But what does it say? Now the it there is the righteousness that comes by faith. What does it say? Here's what it says, quotes Deuteronomy. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call, or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher or proclaimer? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings or preach The good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Therefore, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We'll stop there. The emphasis of that text I just read is on the proclamation of this good news the gospel. Paul calls it in verse eight, the word of faith. He calls it in verse 17, the word of Christ. And he calls it there in verse 16, the gospel, the good news. I wanna look at this gospel proclamation under, excuse me, three headings. One, the nature of gospel proclamation. So let's see first, the nature of gospel proclamation. Now, we use the word gospel frequently, don't we, in our churches? Rightfully so. We speak of the gospel often. But do you know, what does that word, the word itself, gospel mean? What does it mean? Well, just a bit of etymology here. Our word gospel comes from the old English word spell. Goad, good, spell, news. Good news. That's what our word gospel means. Good news, which reflects the Greek word that this New Testament was written in, oo angelion. Oo, good. The angelos is the news or the message. We get our word angel, the word message, good news, a good message here. What is gospel? Gospel is good news. It's something that is proclaimed by a messenger, news, by a herald, a messenger. And as that word was commonly used in Paul's day outside of Bible, it wasn't just ordinary news that that word was used, it was extraordinary news the publishing, the announcing of extraordinary news like, like regime change or victory in battle, the announcement by a messenger, one who was sent to announce this good news. Embedded in this concept of gospel is a messenger who is sent by one in authority. The messenger doesn't come up with the news. He's commissioned by someone in authority to proclaim the news. That's how you know the news is trustworthy. It's not fake news. (laughs) We have fake news today. How do you know it's not fake news? Because of the one who sent the messenger, gave him the message to proclaim this news. Now that concept of gospel is in view here in that text I just read in Romans chapter 10. And it directly informs the nature of gospel proclamation. So what is the nature of this gospel proclamation? A couple things. First, it is a proclamation of what God has accomplished in Christ, which calls for faith. It is a proclamation of what God has done, what God has accomplished in Christ, which calls for faith or submission to this good news. Specifically, the content of this proclamation is that Jesus is the risen Lord in whom righteousness is found by faith. Jesus is the risen Lord in whom right standing with God is by faith in him. Now, if you look at verse 8 there of Romans 10, Paul, speaking about this righteousness by faith, What, what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. Hang on to that. He picks up on that. That is, he calls it the word of faith, which we are proclaiming. He's the herald who's been sent, and he's proclaiming what he calls the word of faith. That is, it's the word that demands faith. It is the opposite of the word of works. There's a word of works that says do, and there's a word of faith that says believe what God has done. Paul says, we, we are, this is the word of faith which we are announcing for you. It calls for faith alone. He says, it is in your mouth and in your heart. What does that mean? He's, he's using the wording here of Deuteronomy. It's in your mouth and in your heart. It means it's accessible and available. This faith, it's accessible and available because faith is the domain of the mouth and the heart. You need nothing else. It's the domain of the mouth and the heart. So this is what he says, look at it, verse eight and nine. That is the word of faith, which we are, this word of faith is in your mouth and in your heart, why? Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, you see the mouth and heart, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's how the righteousness of God is in your mouth and heart because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Four, verse 10, with the heart man believes. It's the domain of faith resulting in righteousness, this right standing with God. With the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. That's why this word of faith is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, because that's the domain of faith. You confess Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Those, Those are not two different things. Those are two sides of the same coin. That belief in the heart, the inner man that says Jesus is risen and all that that means, that confesses that Jesus is Lord. Those those two, you cannot separate. They belong together. Now there is one of the clearest statements in all the Bible on how a person is saved. That is how they have a right relationship with God. When Paul uses the word saved, especially in Romans, he's mostly thinking of that future day. When you stand before the throne, as we sang about, you stand before the ancient of days, you stand before the king, and there's no judgment. You're rescued. You're righteous. Here's one of the clearest statements. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Do you know that? Again, I just encourage you, if you're here this morning and wondering maybe in church you're wondering what what is a right relationship with god mean how how do you have a right standing with god it's not by doing it is by what god has done in christ and you believe it which means you believe who jesus is and confess him as lord and find his mercy so what is the nature of this proclamation this guy well It is centered in Christ. It's an announcement of what God has done in Christ. But also notice, under this nature of gospel proclamation, it is universal in scope. This is the connection I want to make. That the very nature of this gospel as a word of faith demands, calls for, its universal proclamation. Those go together. It is universal in scope. Its very nature demands its universal proclamation. Paul is saying, faith is available, accessible to every person, every human being. If I could put it crassly, if you have a mouth and you have a heart, then this faith is available. It's accessible to you. The law, by design, was limited. But faith? This faith is not limited. There there are no ethnic limitations. There are no cultural limitations. This this word of faith has a universal dimension to go to every heart. Now notice what he does here, verse 11 and 12, as he's thinking about the mouth and the heart. He's gonna keep with that imagery, and he's gonna quote Old Testament. Paul does this all through Romans. He's gonna ground this Gospel in the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes two texts, one from Isaiah, one from Joel, one having to do with the heart, believing, and one having to do with the mouth, confessing. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, this is verse 11, will not be put to shame. The emphasis is on everyone. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It's available to everyone. They will not be put to shame. There is no distinction, verse 12, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call. Now it's the mouth, call upon him. Abounding in riches, what a phrase, for all who call upon him. There's no ethnic distinctions, there's no Jew Gentile distinctions, not in this word of faith. And then again, he goes to the Old Testament for everyone, verse 13, everyone who calls, now he's got the call language. So first he had the believe language, now the call or confess. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a promise. What a promise. Everyone. Anyone. There, there's no prerequisites. It's not an ethnicity. It's not a set of rules. <laughs> it's the word of faith we're declaring. Since Christ is Lord of all, his salvation riches are available to all who call upon him. So he says, since he is Lord of all, he's speaking of Jesus, we confess Jesus as Lord. Since Christ is Lord of all, his salvation riches are available to all. You see, in the history of redemption, God's redemptive plan, this is part of the big framework of Romans, there has been an epic shift with the coming of Christ, an epic shift. The law, he says in verse 4 chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness to everyone who believes. With the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of that promise, now this word of faith goes to the nations, to anyone who believes. So that's the nature of gospel proclamation. It is a proclamation of what God has accomplished in Christ, and it is universal in scope. But that leads now, secondly, to the necessity of gospel proclamation. That's where Paul goes. The necessity of gospel proclamation. That is, if it is universal in nature, anyone, everyone who believes, no distinction, Jew and Gentile, if it is universal in nature, then it demands a universal proclamation. But the question is is such a calling on the Lord really possible? Is it really possible? The necessity of gospel proclamation. Now Paul gets at this there in chapter 10 starting verse 14 with a series of rhetorical questions. And they're very provocative. He's doing this for effect. <laughs> a provocative way. It's a series of these rhetorical questions that you're not meant to answer. The answer is obvious. But in giving those, right here in the Bible, we have one of the clearest, I think it's unique to all of Scripture, of the process of how any person is saved. It's the process. He lays down necessary conditions. So in these... Two verses, 14 and 15, these questions. Paul gives the necessary conditions, the prerequisites of calling on the Lord here, and it's unlike any place in the Bible. Now, he starts, look at verse 14. He starts at the end, and he works his way back to the beginning. He just said in verse 13, whoever, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and then verse 14, how shall they call on him whom they have not believed. So he's gonna start at calling and get all the way back to the foundation, all the way back to the beginning, and he gives the necessary conditions for anyone to call on the Lord to be saved. It's really striking. Just, Just follow his steps there in verse 14. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Remember, calling comes out of faith. Believe in your heart, you confess with your tongue. So you can't call savingly on the Lord Jesus if you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus. And then he drills down the next step. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Remember the herald, the messenger? They've got to hear. It's got to be proclaimed for them to believe and call. And how shall they hear without a preacher, that is a messenger, a herald. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Now, that's that concept of the gospel that I started with that's embedded here. Messengers sent with authority, with a message to proclaim it, So that they hear and believe and call on the Lord to be saved. Isn't that striking? There are the necessary conditions that lead to salvation, that lead to calling on the Lord to be saved. Now that text, those two verses, has massive implications for missions. That's why it's often quoted in mission circles, sometimes quoted wrongly. I'll get to that in just a moment. The necessity, though, it certainly implies the necessity of gospel proclamation, or today in our context, the necessity of missions. The necessity of missions. Here are the implications. Does a person have to believe in Jesus, call on him to be saved? Yes. Yes, this text is unequivocal. If you confess Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must, call on, you must confess Jesus as Lord to be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter said in Acts 4, 12. Does a person have to believe in Jesus to be saved? Yes. Do people need, listen, do people need to hear the gospel in order to be saved? Yes. Yes. Again, he says it there. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? They need to hear the gospel in order to be saved. Look down there at verse 17. Verse 16, Paul takes a little aside to come back to the unbelief of Israel because that's center most for Paul. But but then he comes back to his thought to sum it up in verse 17. Therefore, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's clear. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing through the word of Christ. That's that gospel. That's the word of faith. The word that is about Christ. The message about Christ. Do they need to hear the gospel to be saved? Yes. What about those who have never heard? What about those who have never heard? That's a common question. I get that question all the time. Lots to say to answer that question. Ask Ryan. He'll answer the question for you. But but in short, what about those who have never heard? Here's the short answer they need to hear. (laughs) They need to hear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. They are separated from Christ, they are lost and under the judgment of God. They need to hear. Paul covered that ground in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. We can't cover that ground this morning, but they need to hear. We would ask, couldn't God, couldn't God save them in some other way? Is this always the sequence that leads to salvation? Couldn't he do it some other way? Of course we could say, well, God could do Anyway, but we would just be speculating. Let's not speculate. He has a clear word right here of the process that leads to salvation. We don't presume upon God and neglect what He has clearly revealed. I always think of that story in the New Testament the book of Acts, Cornelius. Remember that story of Cornelius, that God-fearing Gentile and God wants Peter to get the gospel to him. Remember that whole series of events, how how an angel appears to both of them, the angel, all this setting up so the gospel, Peter can bring the gospel to Cornelius so his house can be saved. I always think, why why doesn't the angel just preach the good news to him? He doesn't. I don't know why exactly, except this means that God uses this sequence for salvation, to his glory. He he employs us as messengers in this. Is God sovereign in salvation? Absolutely. That's chapter 9. We we affirm confidently the sovereignty of God in salvation. Paul Paul highlights that in chapter 9. God is sovereign in his mercy. And and Paul doesn't forget what he wrote in chapter 9 when he gets to chapter 10. Those two things are just held together, aren't they? All through the scripture. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So we, we delight in the sovereignty of God, but we don't presume on it by neglecting the God-ordained means by which he brings salvation. We give ourselves to it with confidence. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s. William Carey, father of modern missions, who was then a newly ordained minister, stood in that meeting to argue for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He'll do it without consulting you or me, end quote. Well, no, he won't. (laughs) He employed, this is his means. William Carey didn't believe that and it launched the beginning of world missions. The necessity of gospel proclamation. It's part of the fuel behind the gospel to the unreached. They need to hear so as to believe and call on the Lord. But now, thirdly, lastly, the certainty of gospel proclamation. The certainty of gospel proclamation. This passage, especially those verses I just read, is often used in mission circles, maybe you've heard it used, to stress the urgency of missions and the desperate plea for people to go. Those rhetorical questions are are used that way, kind of an impassioned plea. How shall they believe if they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless someone goes, someone please, please go? Now, while it does show us the necessity of gospel proclamation, this is not Paul's plea desperately to send missionaries. That's not his point. In fact, it's the exact opposite of his point. <laughs> Interesting. Paul uses these rhetorical questions not to create a sense of desperation and urgency, but a sense of certainty. A sense of certainty. If you look there, again, at those questions, it's his last question his last point is his main point that's what he's getting to he's starting at the top they're calling on the Lord in the sequence and he gets down to the foundation that's his main point at the end of verse 15 how shall they preach unless they are sent now it's probably that point that we might scratch our heads And say, you know, I I could follow this whole thing about calling, you need to believe, believing, you need to hear, hearing, someone needs to speak it. But what, what is he talking about, this sending? That you can't preach unless they are sent. But that's his main point. How shall they preach unless they are sent? There must be a sending in order for there to be a proclaiming. Remember that gospel imagery? We don't invent our own message. We don't go in our own authority. We're not self-appointed. There must be ascending, ascending by God with this message. That is, the entire gospel or missions enterprise rests foundationally on God sending messengers. That's what he's trying to get to. In order for this to happen, God must send messengers. And his point, God has sent messengers. Paul's one of them. God has sent them. So he says this. Look at verse 15 again. How shall they preach unless they are sent just as it is written? He's going to go back to the Hebrew Scriptures. That is, God has sent messengers just as it is written, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel of good things. God has sent them. Isaiah 52, 7, when he's quoting that, it not only shows the the value of gospel messengers, but more significantly, that God has sent them. The sending in Isaiah is now fulfilled in the sending of apostolic proclamation of gospel messengers. That's how Paul is using this verse. And Paul is one of those who has been sent. How beautiful are the feet. God is pronouncing their feet beautiful because it's his message they are proclaiming. So Paul is emphasizing here that the foundational condition for this gospel proclamation for salvation has been and is being fulfilled. It's not a sense of desperation, it's a sense of certainty. Do you think do you think God in his glorious wisdom in the unfolding of this plan that comes to culmination in Jesus, this greatest news that's ever been declared, do you think this great news God would not send messengers with it? That's what he's doing. Paul is one of them. That's why Israel is responsible, guilty because Paul is declaring it, they have heard. And so he says in verse 16, however, they did not, here he's speaking of Israel, they did not all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. He comes back to that inexcusability of Israel because they've heard it. They didn't all obey it. But then verse 17 again, he comes back to the end there. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ again the necessity of hearing the gospel but but listen to those words again and hear in it a certainty faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ that is the only way that faith comes it's God's appointed way take assurance faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. It's God's appointed means. Proclaim this news because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. (laughs) That's God's means. Give ourselves to the means that God has appointed. Don't be wiser than God. I know it's discouraged. I know we can think there's there's a thousand reasons why that person will not believe. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Give yourself to it. Now, I just want to finish with just implications for world missions. Just briefly, we've already seen some. The necessity of, of missions is certainly there. But this text both informs and fuels the missionary work. It informs it. The primary task of missions is the proclamation of the word of Christ, calling for faith and repentance, seeking to make disciples. Missionaries, by extension, starts with this apostolic sending, but all sending hints from them is derivative taking this same apostolic gospel to the nations. I think it's right that churches send missionaries, as you have done. But those missionaries are sent ones heralding the good news. It should be so obvious. They're not self-appointed. They don't invent their own message. That's the central message. Now, I say that should be obvious, and yet it needs to be said again and again, Because the temptation in most missions is to begin to focus and focus almost exclusively on relief and development, mercy ministries, aid to people. And I'm not against any of those things. They they must accompany the gospel proclamation and they will accompany the gospel proclamation. But often, missions can get defined as the engagement in those good deeds and the the neglect of the proclamation. That's that's the main reason for sending, the proclamation of the gospel. I was talking with one of our missionaries this, this week. He's back from Mongolia. We sent him. He was seven years old in 1995 when I came to Los Alamos. And it's just been a joy to to disciple and see him and send his family out, serve Mongolia. They're back for for a little while. I was sitting with them, and he told me, he said, Mark, in Mongolia, the easy thing to do is relief and development. You're a hero. The hard thing to do is proclaim the gospel. So the primary task, but then the fuel is the certainty, the certainty that this task cannot fail. God is calling the nations through gospel proclamation. He sends messengers. Faith comes by hearing. The unparalleled privilege of being a gospel messenger. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim this good news. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a beautiful foot. (laughs) They're ugly. Mine are ugly. Uh, You can paint them up, do what you want, soften them up. What does it mean, beautiful feet? It's because of the message, because they're running with the message. That's that imagery from Isaiah. They're running on the mountain, and, and now it's because of the message they have, and God says that's beautiful feet. They're bloodied and snarled and wrinkled, but there is no, no greater privilege, is it? How beautiful are the feet. So I commend you, Desert Springs, in your engagement with the nations. Be engaged. I just everyone, be engaged. Don't sit on the sideline of this grand mission that God is unfolding using the gospel. Be engaged, sending and supporting and praying and giving. Give yourself to the gospel to the nations. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, would you embolden us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, that you would encourage and give us courage to speak the gospel with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our families, but especially to the nations. Give us wisdom how to care for those we send. And I pray if any are just thinking, sparked here of a desire to go, that you would lead them to this glorious task of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We need your grace, but we thank you for your mercy in rescuing us. Give us a passion to share it with others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and respond.